you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. I know it will probably be a far stretch for any of you to remember to go all the way back to 1918, but I want you to go back to 1918. World War I is coming to an end. America has emerged as one of the victors of the First World War. Uh, this time would lead our nation uh, into great cultural change, uh, a lot of prosperity. Uh, and this era was known as the Roaring Twenties. The economy was on the rise. Everything was going very well for the nation. And with the economy doing so well, banks started to give out loans so that people could spend that money back into the economy. This would have been the same time that Henry Ford would release one of the first automobiles. Let me rephrase that. One of the first affordable automobiles. Uh, and he made that vehicle readily available to people, which... In return, they would buy these automobiles, and it gave them an opportunity to take jobs that were a further distance away. It also gave people the opportunity to start going to the shows or going to other places because they could get home so quickly. This makes the economy boom. This creates a little bit of an excess for people who start looking at how they can invest their money. And how people could grow their money. Enter the stock market. Which had no goats in it, by the way. <laughs> Enter the stock market. Everyone is investing. As a matter of fact, many people are getting so rich so quickly that banks are actually... People will go to the bank to take out loans to invest in the stock market because... People with a lot of money, what they really need more of is even more money, right? So they start taking out loans to invest in the stock market. By 1929, the stock market was up 218% since 1922. So in seven years, it had gone up 218%. And it's at this time that production begins to slow down. People aren't buying as much. People don't need a new toaster because they just bought a new toaster. People don't need all of these things because they already had all of these things. Because production slows, interest rates increase. Salaries begin to drop because they don't need all of these people making all of this stuff because they already have an excess of these things. But the crazy part that is happening during this time is even though production is slowing, even though salaries are dropping, the stock market is still going through the roof. It's crazy. This brings us to October the 24th, 1929, known as Black Thursday. No, this was not shopping after Thanksgiving. This was Black Thursday. This is the beginning of what would be known as the Great Depression. When the stocks opened on October the 24th, 1921, people will go crazy selling their stocks. They just want to sell. To the tune of 12.9 million stocks being sold on October the 24th, 1929. And at the opening bell, stocks fell 11%. Things were bad. Things were going to get worse. 
The following Tuesday, October the 29th, was known as Black Tuesday. It was a complete panic. The Dow Jones fell 12%. Not the previous Thursday, it was 12.9 uh, million stocks that were sold. On Tuesday, 16.4 million shares were sold. It says the, mar the market lost $14 billion in one day. That was in 1929. I did a calculator today. It would have been to the tune of $223 trillion that was lost in a single day. Those in debt were in worse conditions. The Dow Jones continued to fall uh, for the next three years, losing 90% of its value from its high in 1929. 90% of its value within a, just a few weeks. The banks were even in worse of a situation. Uh, they were giving about 10 cents to the dollar for what people had in the bank. So if you had $1,000 in the bank and you wanted to take your money out, they would give you 10 cents to the dollar. About one-fourth of the entire nation was unemployed. So the situation was terrible. Of course, from 1930 to 1939 was the Great Depression. Uh, FDR tried to bring relief through the government. Uh, it was only a band-aid to a very bad problem. It wasn't until the, third, uh, the rise of the Third Reich in Germany, uh, we see that the, the Great Depression was felt worldwide, but it was only through the rise of the Third Reich in Germany that uh, America started to rebound. America started to recover. But uh, the war created jobs, the war was able to pay people, and that helped our economy greatly. So, why do I tell you that? Just to get you in a depressed mood? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Because tonight, from where I talked about last week, we talked about King Uzziah. And it was the, a highlight during the days of the king. Since Solomon, there hadn't been a king who reigned as long, there hadn't been a king who brought as much prosperity into the nation of Judah as Uzziah did. And just a little bit of time later, we're going to be smack dab into the Great Depression because King Ahaz is going to drive the country into the dirt. And so between Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham, all three of these kings before King Ahaz, they all did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so... Back to back to back, three kings in a row who did what was right, and then you're going to have King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is going to be such a bad king that it's going to make these guys look so good. So, uh, so how did we get here? Let's talk about where we came from. Uh, as we've looked at the kings, we've done this every single week. First of all, the nation started off with Moses. The people were being led out of Egypt. Um, and we see Moses, he was not their king, but he was their first leader. He was in charge. He very much acted like a king. He was the lawgiver. He was their general. And so as the people were led out of Egypt, as the people were led into the promised land, Moses was the one that was to take them there. Moses then hands the reins off to Joshua. Joshua is the military leader. He is very much a military gen general. The people still answered to Joshua. He was responsible for going into the promised land, 
for wiping out the nations that God did not want to be there, for setting up cities. He divided out the land into the tribes of Israel. And Joshua uh, comes to the end of his life. And we have this time of the judges. And these judges were kind of, uh, as Landon described it, tribal warlords. They were kind of over sections of the nation. And they brought a message from God. Many of these judges, I would say most of these judges, were flawed leaders at best. As they, the nation looked to them, as the nation sought uh, wisdom from them, they were very flawed in their thinking, in their leadership style. Uh, you could get into the judges there, and those, those are great to look at. Then we have Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And he ushered in, he's going to usher in the time of the kings. Um, and I'm talking about the kings being Saul, David, and Solomon. The first three kings of a unified uh, Israel. And Saul not being that great of a king. David really not being that great of a king, but being a man after God's own heart. And did very prosper, prosperous things. And then Solomon starting off really, really good. And then kind of just uh, spiraling out of control towards the end of his life. And that spiral out of control leads us to uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's a civil war within the nation of Israel. You'll have the northern tribe of Israel break off, uh, and that will be Jeroboam. You have the southern tribe of Judah led by Rehoboam. And from there, you have a bunch of kings that will go through the nation of Israel, all of them wicked. Tonight, we're talking about a king of Judah, totally wicked. Okay, and we're going to see how... Uh, king Ahaz uh, comes about to be this type of a, a king in the nation of Judah. So a little bit about King Ahaz. First of all, Ahaz's mother is not mentioned. This is your first blank there. If you will recall, as we've talked about these kings, most of the time you'll say, this is who this king's father was and his mother was this person. Uh, Ahaz's mom is not mentioned at all. Uh, this is... Uh, kind of odd because most of the kings you say this is their mother and there's a lot of different reasonings why people give for this um, uh, because Ahab's mom is not mentioned here Christopher Knapp says it's possible that his father was unfortunate in his choice for a wife okay that's possible I read some other thing, uh, commentaries where it says it's possible that his mom died Maybe when he was a small child, it's possible that she was not in the picture. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we're going to see King Ahaz be the type of king that he is. Uh, possibly uh, knowing how evil King Ahaz was and when the time uh, that Second Chronicles was written, maybe they left her name out because they wanted to save her from the embarrassment of how bad of a king her son was. There's lots of different reasons why people give for why his mother is not mentioned. But mothers were very, a very big part in a king's life of nurturing them, of raising them, before dad started teaching, teaching them the kingly things that he would have taught them. So Ahaz's mother is not mentioned. Secondly, Ahaz is the son of Jotham. He's the grandson of Uzziah. He's the great-grandson of Amaziah. All who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You know, about two months ago, I had a Sunday morning sermon. I talked about parenting. 
And I said, you know, you are not responsible for how your children turn out. Yes, we have a job to parent them. We have a job to teach them the, how God has, you know, commanded us to train up our children in the way that they should go. But ultimately, we are not responsible for if God decides to save our child or not. And we see this here with the kings. We have great-granddad good. We have granddad good. We have dad good. And we're going to have a rotten son right here in the midst of it. And why that chooses to be that way, we we really don't know. Well, we do know, and we're going to talk about it. But under three Judah, uh, three kings of Judah, bringing in this, you know, this age of the roaring 20s. And then King Ahaz is going to lead us into the Great Depression. Uh, Third point, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. 20 years old. He reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As his father David had done. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. It says, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. You know, on this side of history, on this side, as we look back at the kings, as we look at all the kings of Israel and all the things that they did, we know that all of the kings of Israel did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All of them. None of them were good. And we see here in this Uh, first section of 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 2 that King Ahaz is going to be lumped in there with them. King Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's got to be kind of like a slap in the face. That would be like saying in Texas you played like the 1989 Dallas Cowboys. Some of you remember the 1989 Dallas Cowboys. 1 in 15 season, this was when my dad tried to teach me to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. Luckily, they got good really quick after this. But before that, it's like, why would you watch these guys? They won one game the whole year. They're terrible. And you see this, this was their fans that year. They wouldn't even show their face at the game. King Ahaz, 20 years old, he reigned for 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So let's check out some of the reasons why King Ahaz was who he was. Uh, So we'll start reading from verse 2 in 2 Chronicles 28. First of all, Ahaz built metal images for the Baals and made offerings to them throughout the nation, including offering his own son as a burnt offering. Let's start reading in verse 2. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. I love how God's word here does not waste any time to let you know what type of a king King Ahaz is. Get straight to the point. And when you look at his faithfulness of his fathers before him, not perfect, but doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and now you see King Ahaz take the throne, and you see his faithlessness. It's a complete shock. I mean, some of you were kind of after reading about King Uzziah last week, and you read that first few verses in 
First uh, Chronicles 28 or Second Chronicles 28. You're like, whoa, this guy's bad. Baal worship becomes the norm. Here's some pictures of some Baal worship. The Canaanites, the Ammonites, they used to burn their children to the God of Baal. Or sometimes it's referred to as Molech. Molech was actually the act of burning your children uh, to the God Baal. Um, This bottom right picture is actually a statue of Baal that is in the Colosseum. You can go and see that. And uh, the whole front would open up. They would light a big fire in there and they would toss their children in as an act of worship, as an act of sacrifice. Uh, They actually believed that the fire purified their children um, and they sacrificed them. As all of these nations would do before and how the nations that God had driven out of the land, this is what they did. And now we see King Ahaz doing the very thing that was detestable to the Lord. Um, You see in God's word uh, there in the Leviticus verse that I have for you where that was forbidden under God's law. But here we see King Ahaz not only participating but leading. He's doing these things. In verse 4, he made offerings in the high places and under every green tree. This every green tree should remind you that these are the same green trees that Solomon under his reign would lead people in worship. So the same places that Solomon would lead people to honor God and worship God, it's the same place that King Ahaz will set up places of worship to Baal. Therefore, verse 5, therefore, God is going to take center stage right here in the life of of King Ahaz. Uh, Second point, Judah is defeated by Syria and Israel and taken into a mini exile. Starting in verse 5. Therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with a great force. For Pekah, king of Israel, the son of Remelah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor. You remember King Uzziah uh, last week that we talked about him. And he had these mighty men of valor. And how they had all of this armor. And how no one wanted to mess with them. These may have been the same guys. But under King Ahaz, because of his rebellion, 120,000 of them in one day. because, Because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zitri, mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasiah, the king's son, and Azricam, and commander of the palace, and Elkanah, and the next in authority to the king. And the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought them, brought the spoil to Samaria. So the result of Ahaz's faithlessness... To God, it says, God is going to hand him over. King of Syria, come right up. Um, King of Israel, come on down. These attacks from these other nations are spelled out right here in Chronicles. This is divine judgment from God. God says, like I said, God can use the nation of Judah. God can also use the Philistines if he wants to. 
God uses whoever he wants to to accomplish whatever he wants to. And when it's time for King Ahaz to be punished, God raises up these nations and they punish them. Think about that. 120,000 soldiers, men of valor, killed in one day. And it gives the reason why. Because they had forsaken the Lord. They had stopped calling out to God. They had stopped trusting in God. And God's going to punish them for that. And it says, And the king of Israel carried off 200,000 prisoners. Their own people. Their own relatives. Women. Sons. Daughters. All of them. Taken captive and taken to Israel. So God is pouring out his wrath upon the nation of Judah. Because of King Ahaz. You know. God also likes to get our attention. Sometimes it's in nice ways. Sometimes it's in not nice ways. He likes to shake us to our core. And Ahab, if you remember back to Ahab, not to be mistaken with Ahaz, but over and over again, God tried to get Ahab's attention. And he kind of ignored him. And Ahaz is kind of going to do the same thing. Um, God humbles Judah in a massive way. In this massive defeat, not only of the, their military might, but taking 200,000 people captive because of the unfaithfulness of Ahaz. Um, I think God is trying to get his attention. Let's see what happens next. Next point. God sends his prophet Oded to warn Israel and save Judah from captivity. Right here in the middle of a captivity, right here in the middle of the army being wiped out, we're going to see God raise up a prophet and save all of these citizens of Judah from being taken captive. Let's see what happens. Verse 9. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives from whom you have taken. For the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. This is a very interesting exchange. God is pouring out his wrath upon King Ahaz and the nation. The Lord allowed these two nations to come in and whip Judah and to take them into captivity. Um, Oded, this prophet, shows up. And Oded is actually a prophet of Israel. And we don't need to miss that. Remember we say, talked about the, all the... Kings of Israel and how wicked they were. None of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, guess what? There's a prophet right here from Israel that God raises up. And Oded, actually, his name actually means restorer. And he's going to rebuke Israel for enslaving the people of Judah. He will call them out. Okay, He will call out the people of Israel for killing them in rage, for taking them captive, which was forbidden under the Mosaic law. And then he asked Israel, and this is a question that I think we have to consider for ourselves. Don't you have your own sins to worry about? He calls them to repent. He calls them to return the people, their own fellow countrymen, their own brothers and sisters. 
And verse 12 and 15 talks about that. You can read it. But in a very surprising turn of events, you don't see a whole lot of from the nation of Israel in obedience. All the kings did what was evil inside the Lord. But Israel is actually going to listen to this prophet during this time. They're actually going to listen. Wicked Israel, they're going to listen during these times. No good kings. They rise up. They do what's right. They meet the army. They go out and they meet the army before they get back to the city. And they say, all right, stop. You cannot bring these slaves here. I mean, this guy, Oded, he just told us God's wrath is about to be poured out on us. You got to take these uh, uh, slaves back. And so what do they do? They clothe them. They feed them. They tend to their wounds. They return them back home. And those who cannot walk back, they put them on donkeys and they send them back. They send them back to the nation. What a beautiful picture of God showing grace and God showing mercy, even in the midst of some of Judah's darkest days. God showing his grace and mercy during this time. So you would think that that would get Ahaz's attention, right? You would think that it would. Uh, let's continue reading. Because next point, Ahaz, sin, Ahaz sends for help rather than seeking the Lord. So these two nations just came in and completely devastated the country. Uh, trouble round two is on its way. Edom invades Judah and will take captives. And then it says here that the Philistines show up and they come and they ransack cities all throughout the nation and villages along the way. Let's see what Ahaz will do. Verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Assyria was becoming a superpower of the day. They were one of the nations that everyone dreaded. And Ahaz says, I'm going to make a, a pact with this nation of Assyria. Verse 17. For the Edomites had come had again invaded and defeated Judah, carried away captives. The Philistines had made raid on their cities. You can look at all those cities right there in verse 18. Verse 19. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel. And he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord... And the house of the king and of the princes, and he gave tribute to the king of Assyria. Ahaz was looking to bribe the king of Assyria. He says, Tigloth, I want you to come and protect me. All of these other nations are coming against me. I'm going to give you all of this money. If they hear that we are allies, they will not mess with me. So he takes all the gold and he takes all the silver out of the Lord's house. And he gives this tribute to the king of Assyria. And it says, Assyria afflicted him instead of strengthening him. It's going to be like an ultimate backfire on King Ahaz. Let's see how it goes. Next point. In his distress, Ahaz hardens his heart even further against the Lord. Let's continue reading. Uh, I'm going to... Go back a little bit uh, in verse 21. He gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. 
In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that he had, defeat, that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and they were the ruin of all Israel. You know, sometimes I think we think that trials and tribulations in our life will humble us. When difficulties happen, God will use those types of situations to humble us. We see that happen through a lot of the king's lives. God will send a tribulation and they realize the error of their way and they start trusting God the way that they're supposed to. However, sometimes in life, much like we're going to see tonight, it doesn't work. It says we harden our hearts. It will lead to frustration. It will lead to anger. It doesn't lead to Ahaz calling out to God. I mean, this guy, the Assyrian king, just stabbed you in the back after you bribed him with money. Surely, surely you would think that Ahaz would want to cry out to the Lord. Okay, my last effort, I bribed this guy with all this money and he stabs me in the back. Surely you would think that he would call out to God. But Ahaz has this moment. He hardens his heart. He says, if I can't beat them, I will join them. If I can't beat them, I'll join them. Um, If you read in 1 Kings 16, Ahaz goes to meet the king of Assyria. Okay, when he goes to take him this offering, uh, we see him. Uh, and, and this is the picture that you saw a few weeks ago when we talked about Jehu, King Jehu. And that's Jehu, a really bad king, down on the ground, bowing before the king of Assyria. This is the same king, Assyria, uh, uh, king of Assyria that we see Ahaz trying to make this pact with him. Okay, this guy has, has a ton of power. But when King Ahaz goes to meet the king of Assyria, he takes notice at the altar of the king of Assyria. He says, oh, this is the altar that you sacrifice on. And he thinks, wow, this thing's beautiful. And he looks at that altar and he says, I kind of want one of those. So he he makes a sketch drawing and he sends it back to his priest Uriah. And he has him construct this altar to be a replica of the altar that uh, the king of Assyria has. Um, And so that when he gets home, he can offer sacrifices to the gods of the Assyrians. He's kind of like, if God's not going to help me, then I'm going to worship these gods. Maybe they'll help me. The Assyrians are powerful. Even if their leader just stabbed me in the back, I'm going to worship their gods. And after this doesn't work, He takes it even further. Next, Ahaz destroys the temple vessels and he shuts the temple doors. Destroys the temple vessels and shuts the temple doors. Look at verse 24. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut them into pieces, the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places and made to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. I'm going to show you another verse from 2 Kings 16. Because I think this kind of describes a little better the situation that just happened. It's up on the screen. 
says, And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands. He removed the basins from them. He took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And they covered, uh, and the covered way for the Sabbath had been built inside the house in the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the kings of Assyria. When you think about all of these places of worship for the nation of Judah, and Ahaz is going to say, we're getting rid of them all. And not just get rid of them. I'm not just going to shut the doors. I'm going to destroy these things so that they can't be used by the next king. I'm going to shut up the doors. People will not worship Yahweh. They're going to worship the gods of the Assyrians. And so since my gift to the Assyrians did not work, perhaps these gods of the Assyrians, uh, because they helped them, perhaps they will help me. So he shuts up the temple doors. He goes, I am going to wipe out the worship of Yahweh within this nation if it's the last thing I do. And he starts making offerings to the foreign gods all over the city. He makes altars. He builds high places. He offers sacrifices all over the city. This is the worst kind of change that King Ahaz could have made. It's, in essence, ridding the nation of God. I don't want them to think about the one true God. I don't want them to worship the one true God. I'm going to set up pagan idols all over the place. And that's how we will do this. And it's the ultimate picture of idolatry in the nation. Next point. Ahaz is not buried with the kings of Judah. Verse 26 says, Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. It says, And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. Let's be honest. This does not surprise me. It probably does not uh, surprise you whatsoever. The fact that this king, because he wanted nothing to do with how his grandfather, his great-grandfather, or his father ruled. He doesn't want anything to do with them. It's not a surprise that he was not buried with them. I don't know if this was by his doing. We don't know if it was because of the people saying he's not going to be buried with the kings. And so this leaves him uh, with a legacy filled with idolatry, of unfaithfulness, and dishonor in his country, and ultimately to God. And so this is a little bit about the crazy, wicked rule of King Ahaz. So what do we learn from King Ahaz? Um, there's a lot to learn from King Ahaz. A lot, most of it is what not to do in any type of a situation. But like we've talked about every week, number one, sin has consequences. It always has consequences. Over and over again throughout the reign of King Ahaz, we see how he continues to rely on his own strength, which ultimately failed. He continued to rely on the strength of other people and other kings, which failed him. And he's going to rely on other gods uh, that seem to work for other people, but ultimately failed him. All of these will lead to Ahaz's emptiness. It will lead to Ahaz being unfaithful, which was ultimately his undoing. When you think about Everything he put his trust into and being completely and totally against what God had called him to be as a king, 
And it had consequences, not only for him, but for the nation. It cost a lot of people their lives. It cost a lot of people their livelihood and their faithfulness to the one true God. His sin sin led the people uh, in a downward spiral. It led to his downward spiral and it led the nation in a downward spiral. Um, Our sin has consequences. This is one of the reasons why we repeat this every single week in the King. Our sin has consequences. Whether we think it only affects us, it affects you, it affects your family, it will affect your church. Our sin has consequences and we have to remember that. Number two, we should trust in the Lord and his strength instead of worldly powers. You know, it's very easy for us to say, I trust God. We can say that all, yeah, I trust, I just trust God. You know, you get a bad diagnosis, something bad's happening. I just trust God through this situation. But our actions kind of speak louder than our words. And with Ahaz, his actions and his words all lined up. He did not trust God whatsoever, but we have to. What does it look like from day to day where the rubber meets the road? How do we trust God? And I mean really trust God. I think of the story of the rich young ruler. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And in his arrogance, he tells Jesus, man, I've kept the whole law. I'm doing really awesome. I'm, I've got my stuff together. And Jesus says, all right, good job. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of your stuff. I want you to sell it. I want you to give it to the poor. And I want you to come and follow me. And it says that he goes away sad because he had much wealth. He had a lot. I think we are a lot the same way. We may not be financially uh, successful. We may not be wealthy financially. Um, But when we think about our status in the world that we live in, we are highly successful. But because we live in the good old U.S. of A., we are dependent on self for most things. When it says we trust in the Lord and we trust in His strength, instead of maybe our own power and our own strength, I think sometimes we're kind of weak in that area. Depending on your situation, uh, I think idols can be put up in our own lives. Idols such as money. Idols such as property. Idols such as security or retirement or vacation or our children. We think about our children. You don't think about your children being idols, but the way... We set them up on a pedestal. They're very much of an idol. And in a lot of the decisions that we make day in and day out, we are telling God, I don't trust you with these decisions in my life. I don't trust you with my finances. I don't trust you with my future. I'm going to make these decisions for myself. Hey, I'll go to church Wednesday and Sunday, and you can have that. But as far as this, I got this. I got it under control. We don't trust God fully. We're trusting in our own worldly powers and we're trusting in our own self. Uh, And I'm just here to tell you that this is a slippery slope of sin that leads to a lot of hurt in our lives. I read this verse to you earlier, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Our own understanding will get us in trouble. It says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. 
And I love this, verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It's good stuff. Last point, God sends the hope of salvation in the midst of darkness. I want everyone to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. This is good stuff. In some of Judah's darkest days, the nation is in ruin. We hear of hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed. We hear a lot of people, uh, even from other nations, who have been taken captive. God speaks to King Ahaz. And Ahaz is going to refuse to listen. And God, even when his servant Ahaz doesn't want to listen, God is still going to speak to him. Okay? A little bit of background information about Isaiah going to Ahaz. Obviously, this is in the book of Isaiah. You remember when Ahaz had the nations come to war against him. He decides that since every... One else has been whipping, uh, whipping him for all these years. He's going to make a pact with the Assyrians. He says, I'm just going to make a pact with the biggest bad boy on the block. No one will mess with me if the Assyrians are on my side. Let's see if anyone wants to mess with me. And we, talk about how, we talked about how that backfired on him. But in the days of Ahaz, while he was still seeking these alliances... While he was trying to build up his strength by having the Assyrians as his best friend, uh, he should have been calling out to God. As a matter of fact, God tried to get his attention in that moment. But instead of being uh, afraid of God, instead of calling out to God for help, he was trying to make an alliance with the king of Assyria. And God sends him Isaiah. We see this happen in Isaiah 6, 7. And Isaiah is going to go to him and he's going to tell him. Right here at the beginning of of chapter 7. God will not let these people conquer you. He will not let the nation of Israel conquer you. He will not let the uh, Syrians conquer you. As a matter of fact, if you hold on, if you obey God, if you do what God has asked you to do, within 65 years they're going to be gone. And you won't have to mess with them. Isaiah tells him this right there at the beginning of Isaiah 7. If you will trust God... If you rely on God, these people will be gone. You won't even have to mess with them. Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, Ahaz will not listen. He won't listen to Isaiah. And God ends with telling him this in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And then God is going to speak to King Ahaz. Verse 10. This is where we're going to read. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. God says to him, Ask a sign of of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Says, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men? Than you to wear, uh, that you weary my God also. I want you to think about this for a second. Wicked King Ahaz, all he's worried about is being conquered by all these other people. He wants to make a pact with Assyria. And God asks him, All right, listen, put, ask me anything. Doesn't matter if it's as high as heaven or as low as shield. Ask me whatever you wish. And King Ahaz is going, Man, I just don't want to weary you. 
I don't want to put you to the test. I don't want to burden you with my problems. And God says, wait, wait a minute. It's not too little for you to weary men, but you don't want to weary me? God says, really? You go to the king of Assyria, but you don't want to bother me? Then he says this, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. doesn't matter if you want it or not. I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as you have as have not come since the day of the Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. God tells him exactly what's going to happen. All of the things that are going to happen, and yet even then Ahaz will not listen. You know, it's amazing to me to think that God spoke to Ahaz. I want you to just let that sink in for a second. God spoke to Ahaz. All of the evil that he did... All of the doing exactly what God had asked him not to do, even as a king of Israel, I mean a king of Judah, he's going to rebel over and over again. He's going to do it his way, trusting in himself, trusting in other powers, ignoring God. He sought his own way. Yet, it says, even in the midst of darkness, God revealed his plan. God revealed his plan. Verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In a time when Judah had a king that was a complete and total failure, God was still paving the way for the perfect king to come to us. The perfect king that we needed, Jesus Christ, is the king that always chooses to do good, who never chose to do anything wicked, who completely and totally obeyed God fully. And make no mistake, even the kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, they were still lacking in the kingship that Jesus reigned in as these kings were. So all these kings, right or wrong, they were all pointing us forward to the one true king, Jesus Christ, who would reign. And Isaiah speaks it right here to Ahaz, and that is the promise that we have to live with today. So uh, let's pray as we end tonight.